This episode of Pod Cemetery is not brought to you by Pringles Pizza Flavored Crisps. Be one of, I don't know, three people in the world and attract the next love of your life slash creepy stalker today with Pringles Pizza Flavored Crisps. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. And this week it's almost a double feature on Pod Cemetery. With 1954's Rear Window and 2007's Disturbia. Disturbia. Jesus. I even read the lyrics. I couldn't remember. I can't remember them right now. (laughs) Before we get into the movies real quick, Kelsey, we watched uh, Fear Street recently the the first one 1994 or whatever it's called yes we did what'd you think of it i really enjoyed it yeah yeah it reminded me of a couple of other things sure but i enjoyed the premise i thought it was interesting i'm curious to see where it goes yeah i think it's i think interesting is the key word i think this one in particular was like targeted just at me (laughs) it was doing that thing that comes off as a little bit desperate for period pieces where they have like three or four different licensed tracks in a single scene to be like hey hey we're set during this time period. Hey, remember this song? Remember this song? Remember this song? Like I did that quite a bit, but it's also, you know, like that's that's my era. Like, you know, they say how whatever's going on when you're like 12 or something like that is like what you stick with. You know, your favorite whatever, your favorite band at that time is probably going to be your favorite band, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I was 11. When this movie takes place. So it's pretty close. I mean, I was younger than that. I love all the music that's in this yeah. too. <laughs> but you know me, I'm a big 90s over 80s kind of guy. <laughs> even though, you know, obviously there's a lot to like about the 80s. Kelsey's more of an 80s over 90s type of gal. Yes, I am. So, but yeah, I mean, it was interesting. It wasn't, I mean, it's not... It's not like incredible filmmaking or anything like that. It was just fun. We, we it enjoyed it. It was a it. lot of fun. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so if you're into that sort of thing, apparently it's going to go into the 70s, uh, Friday the 13th kind of vibe coming up this week, I think, in just like a, a day or two. Yeah, it's it's it seems like Friday the 13th because it's set at a sem- summer camp. But yeah. if you think about it, it's set in 1978, which is supposed to evoke thoughts of Halloween. Yeah. But he does have, like, a burlap sack over his head, which is very Jason. Yes. Actually, by the time this comes out, it will already be out. So if you're listening to this episode, you can watch the first two movies if you want. Uh, the first one was interesting. Well, we might have watched the second one by the time this, the next episode comes out. We'll tell you how that when is. When does it come out? 
uh, Friday, I think. Okay. Yeah. And then there's another one that takes place in 1666, which is the basis for all. Like, you will find out in the first movie why these years in particular are important. Yeah. So it's not like a spoiler or anything like that. But you'll know right away um, why it's important that the last one takes place in 1666. So uh, I'm interested to see the other two. I will continue watching. I'll put it that way. Yes, me too. All right, our first movie, another Hitchcock classic, 1954's Rear Window, written by John Michael Hayes, based on the short story by Cornell Woolrich, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, as I said, starring James Stewart, Grace Kelly, Wendell Corey, Thelma Ritter, and Raymond Burr. Uh, We've already had Grace Kelly on this show for our last Hitchcock movie that we did, which was Dial M for Murder. Yes. That's two for three of her Hitchcock movies (laughs) that we've done. I mean, Jimmy Stewart's Jimmy Stewart. (laughs) Uh, Raymond Burr might sound familiar to you and not just because you have listened to the Hamilton soundtrack (laughs) or remember that Got Milk commercial from way back when. Who shot Alexander Hamilton in that famous duel? And he can't answer the the trivia question on the radio, even though he's obsessed with it, because he has peanut butter in his mouth. I do remember that. Let me get some milk. I do remember that. Anyway, wrong Burr. That's Aaron Burr. This is Raymond Burr. He's the guy that they brought in to Americanize Godzilla. When they brought it over from Gojira to Godzilla and they filmed some new scenes with some Americans, that was Raymond Burr. He is also television's Perry Mason. Perry Mason, famous attorney character, I guess, detective slash attorney character. Which they from just remade. Books and, and radio. And it was yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The remake was uh, interesting. And yeah, he was the original TV's Perry Mason. He's also in... Which we found out today. Oh, he was a crossword puzzle clue for you today. <laughs> what was the clue? I don't It was a series he was in. You were like, oh. Oh, Ironside, uh, where, where he plays a detective in a wheelchair. Yeah. Uh-huh. Apparently. <laughs> anyway, interestingly, there's a little variation from the original short story. The main character does, in fact, have a broken leg, but you don't find that out until the very, very end of the story, which I wonder how they keep that a secret the whole time. Like, why doesn't he ever leave or anything like that? Yes, I would be curious to read it. What is Rear Window about? A man with a broken leg. (laughs) (laughs) Jimmy Stewart. Stuck inside for five weeks in his last week, witnesses what he believes to be a murder. And convinces his girlfriend and his nurse and his boss to help him look into it. Not his boss, his old buddy. Oh, buddy. War buddy. Yeah, his war buddy who is now a police detective. Yes. Uh, Interestingly, that's Wendell Corey. Interestingly, I wrote down, I'm like, this guy sounds like the dude from Agent for Harm. Now, that's going to be really an obscure reference for a lot of people out there. It was a James Bond wannabe movie that... Uh, I think was originally supposed to be a pilot for a television series that didn't pan out. And so they just made it a movie. Uh, and he's the boss, like the head honcho at harm. 
which is this spy organization or whatever. The movie's really, really bad, but I know it because it's one of my absolute favorite Mystery Science Theater 3000 episodes. <laughs> and so I hear him talking and he has this kind of slurred speech. It apparently gets worse with age because they make fun of him that it sounds like he's drunk in every scene. Aww. This is the detective friend. <laughs> he's like slurring all the time in that Aww. movie. So I have no idea if that's his own personal demons or not. But or I could he had, hear like, a it. Stroke or something? Maybe I don't know. But I could hear it in this, and I'm like, that's the dude. For I look it up. Sure enough, Wendell Corey from. Uh, Agent for Harm plays Detective Tom Doyle in this movie. I admit it all has a mysterious sound. Could be any number of things. Murders are the least possible. What was his assistant's name, please? Yeah, drunk soul. You can watch the movie for free if you are a Prime subscriber, or you can rent it for $4 and buy it for roughly $14 on most services, but it is $8 on Apple. That's where you'll find it the cheapest. Should people watch Rear Window? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a very good movie. I agree. There's kind of this battle in my mind of my favorite Hitchcock movies. And I haven't seen all of them. I think I mentioned here before that I tried watching. Like, I have seen all the silent ones. And that's about as far as I got into his. Because he has, like, 52 movies that are that you can still get that he's ever directed. So I started from the beginning. And I was like, oh, I can watch one a week. And I didn't get too far. But I watched, like, all of his silent films. And uh, so there's a lot of movies by Hitchcock that I haven't actually seen, but this is absolutely one of my favorites. I mean, of course, there's Psycho and of course, there's Vertigo. And I think Vertigo might be my favorite, but it's been a long time since I've seen it. But this one is up there. I really, really like it. I think you should definitely see it. For me, Rear Window, Psycho. I love the birds. Even though nobody wants to listen to our episode about the birds, I love the birds. Yeah, the birds is good, but it's not like, I don't know, I just feel like there's top tier filmmaking at work in like those movies specifically that I mentioned. Well, Dial M for Murder is fantastic. It's really, really good, but it strikes me as just, yeah, I think we mentioned it, like he's just sort of filming a play. You know, because that's exactly what it is. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I I would love to see that movie on stage. But this, like, really, really skillful. They they went above and beyond. It was the largest indoor set ever made at the time. Uh, and it was so big that they had to actually remove the floor of the studio and build it in the basement up. And so when you're looking at the ground floor and all those cars are driving by and stuff like that, that's actually the basement of the studio building. Oh, funny. Yeah. And so they removed the entire floor and then, yeah, just so they could fit all these buildings in there. And they had elaborate uh, lighting rigs set up where, you know, in less than an hour they would change from, you know, morning to night or whatever because they were all set up and everything was in-house and it was actually, it's kind of a cool thought how much effort went into this and in such a, it's almost a bottle episode of a movie, but not quite. So you can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 1954's Rear Window. This is the apartment of a man named Jeffries, a news photographer whose beat used to be the world. Right now, his world has shrunk down to the size of this window. He's been watching the people across the way. Nobody seems to pull their blinds during a hot spell like this. He knows a lot about them by now. Too much, perhaps. First, I watched them just to kill time, but then I couldn't take my eyes off them, just as you won't be able to. 
And you won't be able to take your eyes off the glowing beauty of Grace Kelly, who shares the heart and curiosity of James Stewart in this story of a romance shadowed by the terror of a horrifying secret. All right, Kelsey, get us started. How does Rear Window begin? We get to see the set. And we get to see a lot of the inhabitants. Not all of them, but a lot of them. What kind of inhabitants do we get? We see a couple that sleeps out on their stoop because it's so hot. Uh Uh-huh. Which is important to the story because that's why everyone has their windows open. Mm -hmm. Out on the uh, fire escape. Mm Oh, yes, their fire escape. Uh Sorry. We see L.B. Jeffries with his broken leg, and they give it, the show us a camera to tell us that he is a, a photographer. We also get to see a shot of, I don't know, I can't remember if I just always assumed this or if it's in the script. Is that shot of the race car flipping end over end, that, that photograph, like it's obviously his, is that the accident that broke his leg? Well, he's on the phone with his boss pretty soon after this shot, and they will say, yes, he, uh, he, he's the one who got in the middle of the raceway to take the picture, uh-huh. and he got hit by a car. I get myself half killed for you, and you reward me by stealing my assignments. I didn't ask you to stand in the middle of that automobile racetrack. You asked for uh, something dramatically different. You got it. So did you. His cast says, here lies the broken bones of L.B. Jeffries, which is a great way of introducing your main character and his name. I kind of love that. Mm-hmm. We find out that he's got one more week with the cast on. Yeah, and that his boss thought that it was today that he was going to get it off. Mm-hmm. And so, well, I guess I'll send somebody else in to this exciting assignment. Mm-hmm. They also talk about the fact that he has a girlfriend and she really wants to get married, but he does not want to. And right after that, he will see Raymond Burr fighting with his wife, you know, reinforcing Uh why he doesn't want to get married. On the other side, he also sees a newlywed couple on their first day in their new apartment. These are the newlyweds on a honeymoon no one will ever forget. They're off to have sex. Lots of it. (laughs) And lots of it. Uh, who else time. do we see? We also see the dancer. Miss Torso. Miss Torso. Miss Torso, the body beautiful. That is, viewed from a safe distance. And then there's Miss Lonely Hearts. For instance, down there on the second floor, the woman pacing about. He calls her Miss Lonely Hearts. So lonely that even death seems like a friend. It's a very tragic story there. Yes, she's... I mean, I it's the 50s, so I would guess maybe she's probably 30 at this point, uh-huh. thinking that her life is over because she's not married. I, I think the actress was older than that, but yeah, that's kind of the... She's middle-aged, I think, is the point, and she feels like, well, she's going to be alone forever. Yeah. There's the landlady of the property across the courtyard. Likes to do artwork uh-huh. and also tell Aaron Burr, Raymond Burr. Raymond Burr, how to take care of his garden, to which yes. he always tells her to shut up. Uh-huh. He calls her Miss Hearing Aid, an artist of a very odd and strange art. We also get the musician who provides almost, not quite, because there are like, we'll hear radios play and stuff like that, but he provides basically the diegetic soundtrack to this movie. And this is where we get to see Hitchcock with his infamous 
one shots that yes. he's in. He is in that and man's it seems apartment. A little. <laughs> Like, we just, there's no reason for him to be there. Oh, I see what you're saying. It almost seems like they're lovers. Yes, because, you know, they're musicians. I think that's like our modern sensibilities coming to this. The songwriter who plays the same melody over and over again. A genius or insane? That piano player is Ross Bagdasarian. He's the songwriter here. And I told you, he's somebody you definitely know but would not recognize. Mm -hmm. He's the guy who created Alvin and the Chipmunks. A genius or insane? Awesome. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Does he do the voices? He does the voices, yes. And he plays their The piano, which makes sense. uh Does he do what's-his-name, too? Yes, he does, yeah. That's him. Alvin! Yes. Okay, Simon. Okay. Okay, Theodore. Okay. Okay, Alvin. Alvin. Alvin! Okay! Awesome. So he came up with that Christmas song. (laughs) But so we also get to meet his nurse. Yeah, Stella, played by Thelma Ritter. Who we know from... I don't think we know her from anywhere. Oh, I looked her up because I was like, I know her. And apparently she's in a lot of things, but she was in Pillow Talk, which... Oh, right, yes. I absolutely love, so... All About Eve... And she is very concerned about him constantly watching other people. She's like, you know, you're going to see something you shouldn't, which he does. Interestingly, I mean, it's an interesting dynamic. It it talks about, like, both the time and how important our main character is. That she's a nurse that the insurance company pays for and sends to him to take care of him. Like, that's how valuable he is to the insurance company. It is worth it to them to employ somebody just to do this to make sure that he recuperates well, Mm -hmm. which is kind of cool. And we will again hear more about his girlfriend and the fact that his nurse is just like, what the fuck is wrong with you? This woman is perfect. And all she wants to do is marry you and be the perfect wife, and you can't have that. And he's like, exactly. She's too perfect for me. Because his whole thing is that he wants to live a life of adventure, and he doesn't think that she would be able to do that because it doesn't fit in with her lifestyle. Yeah, her lifestyle is one of high society. She is very good at living in that world. And he's like, that world is very different from the one I, like, I love, he'll talk later about the status quo. He's like, I, I, I basically, I love the status quo. I love what we are right now, but I don't see us getting married because we just have two completely different worlds. When I come home, you and I, we spend our time together. And that's kind of, that's a reality as far as he's concerned. He's just like, it's not necessarily the way I would prefer it. I would like it if you enjoyed my life, but I don't think you would. I wrote down here later. I think I wrote it down when Grace Kelly actually shows up and they get in an argument about this, but I'll say it here now because it's the topic. I wrote, how could you disappoint that woman? She is just so incredibly lovely and awesome. She's a fantastic character in this. And she gets to have the 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 storyline, her development here is that she gets to have her own exciting, life-threatening adventure right here and right now and proves that, you know, she could live that life. My biggest issue with it is that she decides at the end to change for him. And he doesn't change whatsoever for her? Yes. Yep. Uh-huh. She People... wears pants, Kelsey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she she stops wearing dresses and starts wearing pants. <laughs> so 
like to bring up like Greece, like, oh, it's so shitty, she completely changes for him. What people forget is that at the end, he's willing to change for her, too. At the very end, I mean, he joins fucking track. He's uh-huh. wearing a sweater at uh-huh. the end to show that he's going jock because he thinks that's what she would like. People forget about that uh-huh. aspect of it. I mean, because he immediately takes it off because he realizes, cool, she wants to be hot with me. But take that out of it and you remember that he was willing to change for her. L.B. Jeffries is not willing to change anything, an iota of yeah. his life for mm-hmm. her. And that bothers me. Understandable. So... She shows up in a dress which she says would cost $1,100 for today. That is a ridiculous price for yes. a dress. Inflation tells us that it's about 10 times that. That is in insane. Today's money. Yeah. But yeah, as you say, even the $1,100, if you were to spend $1,100 on a dress today, that's incredible. I mean- She spent- effectively $11,000 on that dress. Or somebody else did and she's wearing it. That's what she says. 11000 No, it was 1100 Yes, but in today's money, 11000 I mean, some women pay that much for their wedding dress. I can't imagine doing that for a fucking cocktail dress. Yeah. It's a beautiful dress. That's something that we didn't really talk about. The costumes were all designed specifically for this movie by Edith Head, who we've talked about in the past. She's basically the inspiration for Edna Mode in The Incredibles. <laughs> like, she was that person. So she did all the costumes She did for the this costumes for, for this movie, yeah. Huh? That's awesome. No capes. <laughs> she brings in this very fancy dinner. Because he cannot go anywhere, so she's just like, I brought it to you, and she's talking about her day and how she just had, <laughs> she drank a lot to that day. Like, they, I guess, I don't know, I know that a lot of people do a lot of drinking, I just can't imagine it. I had cocktails with this person, then I had cocktails with this person, uh-huh. and I'm just like, how are you just sober right now? Like, how are you not falling down all well, over the place? Kind of like we said about Wendell Corey. Everyone was just a little bit drunk at all times back then. <laughs> yeah, drunk so. But he doesn't like that she has the perfect dinner. He doesn't like that she has the, the town wrapped around her finger. He thinks that's great for her. I guess that's what he does kind of budge on. If you could say he budges on anything, is he accepts the fact that, you know what, yes, he does like that stuff. He likes, though, this romantic legend that he gives off, you know, and he is unwilling to accept that. Now, there's shit about that that he does like. And so I guess he does kind of make that concession, but it's very minor and it's not at all addressed in the movie. (laughs) It is just this whole giant stuffed uh lobster <laughs> yeah jesus <laughs> oh my god the whole th- and the 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 dude from the restaurant comes and delivers it and it's like this whole thing and it, come on you have that wonderful woman bending over backwards to make you happy what the fuck are you doing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but so yeah this is when we get to see even more of these people. Uh, interesting thing about Miss Torso is that we see her entertaining a lot of men 
So you get kind of the impression that she's kind of like a Holly Go Lightly kind of character, where she just kind of lives off of men paying for her. But at the very end, you're going to find out that she's married to a guy in the war. Yeah. So why is she having all these men over at her house? Well, we do know that at least at one point, there are a lot of male dancers, because she's a dancer. Right, but... Uh, but there is that one where there are the three men over, and doesn't she kiss that one yeah, older guy? One. But maybe he, it's like her uncle or something like that. No. Does she make out with him? <laughs> it, no, it, it was definitely not that kind of kiss. But okay. there is the implication, and she does kick them out later. Uh-huh. There is an implication that perhaps she didn't want the kiss, but she also does then return it. So it's like, is it supposed to be that she just kind of is like, well, this is what's happening. Felt compelled so to. Might yeah. as well do it so that nothing else happens. It's just like, mm. Jesus Christ, all of these implications that we are not going to get any confirmation on uh-huh. are kind of fucked. And it's kind of fucked that we lived in a society where that was just like, that's just the way it is, man. Uh-huh. That's just the way men treat women. Yeah. That's what's the way what, women have to deal with things. What's the problem? Well, this guy hit, beat his wife and then she disappeared. And <laughs> like, that's the plot of the movie is a bunch of people going. Yeah. <laughs> and then we also see a little bit more of Miss Lonely Hearts. It's really sad. She oh, my this whole, God. Like, she pretends like that she's talking to someone and, and, and welcomes them in and like, Sets out like a meal uh and then she just starts crying. It's heartbreaking. Yes. And he at first is like laughing about it. And then when he sees her crying, he looks away because that makes him uncomfortable. Uh But then later he talks about it like this happens a lot. Speaking of misery, poor Miss Lonely Heart. She drank herself to sleep again alone. Poor soul. Oh, well. Maybe one day she'll find her happiness. Well, some man will lose his. So I'm like, so why are you laughing at her in the beginning? If you've seen her do this a bunch well, and you then know again, how it's gonna end. Then again, so does Stella, and Stella knows what he calls her, and she's in on it too. It's yeah. not just this heartless man, it's just that's normal society. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's really fucked up. You know, guys, I wrote a paper. And I'm not going to really talk about it at all. But I wrote a paper in college about how this was all about the Red Scare. Mm-hmm. Uh, Knowing what's going on in your neighbor's home. And yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. But now I really, thinking back and looking back, I'm like, I should have written it more about the cruel indifference of 1950s American culture. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, I wrote it about how we were all terrified and and we're watching everybody. Yeah. Paranoia. Mm-hmm. Now, there's also a hint of, and you usually get this in a Hitchcock movie, there is a hint of feminism at the core of this film. Sure. Like I said, you kind of get that with Hitchcock, but it's Action-oriented always, women. But it's always yes. kind of a weird feminism, because it's also kind of... It's still firmly rooted the within male the gaze. status quo. And, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. But... Aside from that, it's odd because Grace Kelly will constantly be put in the position of she's right and the men don't listen to her, Mm -hmm. right? And L.B. Jeffries will usually be on her side and will usually try to back her up because that's what men have to do because women can't stand on their own. Uh At one point, they're talking and I think you're supposed to think she's being a nag. I think it's when she's talking more and more about, like, 
how she wants to get married and how he doesn't and how he's trying to prove what he's seen or something. There can't be that much difference between people and the way they live. We all eat, talk, drink, laugh, wear clothes. Well, now look, now look. If you're saying all this because you don't want to tell me the truth, because you're hiding something from me, then maybe I can understand. I'm I'm not hiding anything. It's just that I It doesn't make sense. What's so different about it here from over there or any place you go that one person couldn't live in both places just as easily? Some people can, if you just let me explain to you. What is it for traveling from one place to another taking pictures? This is like being a tourist on an endless vacation. Okay, now that's your opinion. You're entitled to it. Now let me give you my... It's ridiculous to say that it can only be done by a special private little group of anointed people. I made a simple statement. A a, a true statement, but I can back it up if you just shut up for a minute. Well, if your opinion is as rude as your manner, I don't think I care to hear it. Oh, come on, now simmer down. Yeah. You, I can't fit in here, here, you can't fit in there. I mean, according to you, people should be born, live and die on the same spot. Shut up! But he keeps telling her to shut up. Yeah, uh-huh. And she keeps not shutting up. And That's I'm like, the nag part, is she won't stop. Yeah, uh-huh. And that's what I'm wondering. Like, I'm like, am I supposed to feel like, yeah, keep talking, because fuck him? Or am I supposed to think, oh yeah, she is being a nag here? Like, I don't know. I, I, mm, that's, I mean, it's a really good question. I get the sense today that both of them are being a little bit unreasonable in this scenario because she is just constantly repeating the same refrain like over and over again. And I don't even think she really knows what point she's trying to make. She just needs to be expressing herself at him and he needs to shut her up. And that makes him an asshole. And so from today's perspective, it's okay. They're both being, if they just calmed down and talked about how they felt, but there's no way that's going to happen. Not back then. (laughs) But, I mean, they even made that joke earlier when the nurse wouldn't let him cut in. And I thought that was more just, like, in the beginning, I was like, oh, it's a joke because he he has a little bit of a stutter if you know. Uh-huh. What's his name? Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart. Like, he has a trouble getting to his point uh-huh. oftentimes. But then they reinforce it with this situation, with this conversation. And I'm like... Is he saying that women are nagging and irritating? Or is he saying that men need to shut the fuck up and listen? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Interesting that you mentioned the stutter because I've noticed a couple moments in the movie where somebody fucks up a line and just keeps going. And I was very surprised that it would wind up in the movie, but also it lent this sort of naturalistic authenticity to the conversations, because that's almost all you get the entire movie. You have the observation of the neighbors with no context, and you have the conversations of the people in Jeffrey's apartment, and that's it. And so those conversations feeling real is really, really important to the success of this movie. Do you know of any examples? Because I I know that that. I can't think of the specifics, but I know that – he does at least once say the wrong word and then repeat himself. But see, he can get away with that. Yeah, because he's, he's Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart, Stewart. That's the way he acts. <laughs> uh, but but so does Grace Kelly. Does At she? one point, yeah. I never noticed that. Yeah. I hope you can find it. Yeah, me too. A, a, a true statement, but I'll, I can back it up if you just shut up for a minute. You, I can't fit in he, here. You can't fit in there. You know, if someone came in here, they wouldn't believe with it. See? 
you'll go. You won't dig anything up and get your your neck broken. Yeah, so she's very upset after this conversation, and she's just like, fine. You know, if you don't think that we're ever going to get married, then we shouldn't be together. And he's like, well, like you said, well, why can't we keep it the status quo? She's like, well, we can't. And he goes, well, when am I going to see you again? And she goes, not for a very long time. Or at least until tomorrow night. Yeah. (laughs) Couldn't we just keep things status quo? Without any future. Well, when am I going to see you again? Not for a long time. At least not until tomorrow night. And it felt real uh-huh. because that is the way that people behave because right. I'm in love with you. I don't want to break up with there you. There is a conflict between their desires and what they think is right. And she thinks he's not doing right by her and they shouldn't see each other for a while. But she really is in love with him and she wants to see him still. Girls, don't do it. <laughs> Make him marry you. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Anyway, that night, so he'll fall asleep in his chair. He does this all the time, which they tell him not to do, but he does. Mm -hmm. But it is because he's asleep in his chair right by his open window that he wakes up and hears a scream. And she says, don't. (laughs) And he's just like, what the fuck? But then it starts to rain and he notices Raymond Burr suddenly in the middle of the night going out into the rain several times with a briefcase mm-hmm. now he's a salesman so people are like we're well, making a sales call at three o'clock in the morning in the rain mm-hmm. but that's the briefcase he's carrying he's carrying like a metal briefcase like it that's where he keeps his samples yes but yeah he he comes back and forth a couple of times and we know that because he keeps checking his watch. We see other things as well. We see that the pianist is drunk. <sighs> pianist. We've received confirmation, Kelsey. It's pianist. <laughs> he's drunk, we find out because he's also very alone and miserable. Uh-huh. And we see that Miss Torso forces a man out. And remember this is all taking place like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. Uh-huh. And you're just like, these people do not need any sleep. Uh-huh. Well, um, the, when the rain starts falling, the couple that's on the fire escape have to take their mattress inside. Yes. And that they're fumbling around doing that. It's funny in that sense, but it's also a lot of sad and weird and unsettling mm-hmm. things are happening in the middle of the night. The couple on the fire escape, they're the ones with the dog, right? Yes. They have a tiny dog that they lower down in a basket from the fire escape so it can go to the bathroom. And it always ends up tearing up the flowers in Lars Torvald's flower garden. That's Raymond Burr. That's his name? Yeah. Lars? Yeah. But so, yeah, he fell asleep, so he didn't get to see how the night ended. But yeah, he wakes up, the dog is being brought down, and he is watching his neighbor. Watches him looking at the dog, but he's nice to the dog in front of everyone in the middle of the day. Uh Uh-huh. And his nurse is there, and she's just like, what are you doing? And he's, because he's now got... Either he's now got his binoculars or he's got he's his got giant the, camera. the telephoto lens on his camera, yeah. And she's just like, I can smell trouble coming. This is not good. You shouldn't be doing this. Mm-hmm. But he sees him later 
with some machetes. His knives. <laughs> These might be the knives that he sells. They well, he sells fake jewelry. Is that what he does? Yes. Yeah. Okay. But he sees him putting those into his selling box, and he's like, "What the hell is going on?" Uh huh. I am right about this. And then there's the purse. That he sees the wife's purse. He doesn't see the wife in her room. Mm-hmm. And she see- she oh, was yeah. bedridden. Yeah, she's a bedridden invalid. Uh-huh. Who, like we said earlier, is we said they were fighting. Mm-hmm. What it seems more like is that she is very mean to her husband. Yes. What is he doing where she like nice. gets out of bed and comes in- into the living room and then like laughs at him? He's, he's doing on the something. phone. He's on the phone. Oh. We have no idea the context of the conversation. So this might be sh- her finding out that he's talking to another woman. Yes, and she's making fun of him. Yeah. But like- What, I you mean, think you can get a woman or what? Yeah. Right, but even if you didn't want to think about that, at one point he brings in her food. Uh-huh. And like she tosses the flowers and makes fun of it and she makes fun of the food that he uh-huh. made for her. It's just like- She's a miserable woman and she takes it out on him. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Or took it out on him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's around this time that Grace Kelly will come back, and he will have seen him covering up the machetes. <laughs> and, like butcher's knives and stuff like that, but one of them is huge. And he asks her, gee, just, you know how he always says gee, uh-huh. <laughs> just how would you cut up a body? And that's when she's like, you are beginning to scare me. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm scared by what's going on. Yeah. And she's just like, I need proof. And he's just like, well, think about it. No one has gone into that bedroom. She needs constant care. And he has not been in to see her once today. What is going on? Yeah. And then we see. Him packing all of her things up. Yeah, a large trunk rolling up the mattress. That causes her to question, and this and her involvement then causes the nurse to become involved. Yeah, so all three of them are kind of in a little club of watching this man and trying to figure out what's going on. And after he sees the giant box being taken away... They just is, assume... This is when he employs the help of his friend, his old army buddy. Yes, this is Wendell Corey as uh, Thomas Doyle. But he, according to him, he's like, look, everybody saw him take his wife on a train. Uh-huh. Everybody saw it. She went home. Look, he even got a letter from her. Uh, it was a postcard, which is the only reason that he that the cop could tell what was in it, because they weren't going to get a warrant or anything like that, but he could read what was written on the outside of the postcard. And Jeffries is just like, I want you to just bust in there, man. Go in there and find stuff. And he's like, I'd like to remind you of the Constitution. You can't do that. Uh Uh-huh. Which is a constant problem with, with these kinds of stories. Like, you think, well, it's obvious that he murdered her, right? So he should be able to just do that. And it's like, but imagine that, guys. Imagine if it, if that's all it took. I say you're you killed somebody, so now we can just come into your home and look through your shit. That shouldn't be the way that it goes. Exactly. None of this detracts Jeffries. He keeps watching. He sees him making long distance phone calls. He sees that he has the 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 purse of her personal effects of her uh, personal jewelry. Jewelry, yeah. And this is what really causes Grace Kelly to get involved because she's just like, I know women. And there's no way in hell 
that she would be going upstate for any extended period of time and not bring her purse, her jewelry, her wedding her ring, wedding ring. Like, yeah, I mean, I totally I get what she's saying. You know, I have a purse that I bring with me everywhere. I the only time I take my wedding ring off is when I take a shower. Like, you know, yeah. I, I get what she's saying. And this is again when his friend will be like, I don't trust a woman's intuition. And I think we're supposed to be thinking that it's feminist of Hitchcock because she is right. Yeah. And she does know what she's talking about. You can't about. just go on intuition. But legally, that is. Right. But that's not what he was saying. Uh -huh. But at the same time, his whole thing is women's intuition is always wrong. Women have always led me on wild goose chases. Uh -huh. So I'm like, I see the feminist twinge here. Uh huh. But you're also giving lots of evidence that feminine intuition is right. wrong. But for the first half of the movie, at least, actually more than that, Doyle is an impediment. He's there to do two things. To give the legal perspective to the audience that there's nothing that they can do. And two, to provide that obstacle to Jeff, which is what Grace Kelly calls him, and Lisa, Grace Kelly. And so... He is kind of a, a negative voice in the movie for most of the movie. So you're not exactly supposed to agree with him. You're just supposed to go, okay, I mean, I guess I see that. But still, this guy absolutely killed his <laughs> wife. <laughs> so we didn't mention a conversation that Jeff and Grace Kelly had earlier in the film where he was explaining to her, I go places with one bag only. That's all I carry on me. You couldn't do that. And she has shown up, ready to do a stakeout. And spend the night. Spend the night, which is, you know. Scandalous. Very scandalous. Again, again, I, I'm like, this is supposed to be feminist, but at the same time, this cop is judging her. But as you just said, the cop is supposed to be a negative space, so. But he's also judging Jeff. <laughs> like, I mean, that's his point. He's like, she's spending the night. And he has to be like, Tom, watch yourself. Careful, Tom. Which is a great little interaction between the two of them. <laughs> like, don't you do not go there. But yeah, she shows up in the, with this little case. Tiny little case. Talking about, they have a conversation earlier about this negligee that she has that weighs a certain amount. And that's what's so important about it. And he like doubles the actual weight of this negligee. It's, oh, it's only like three ounces or whatever it is. Did you ever have those high heels? They'll be great in the jungle and the nylons and those six ounce laundry. Three. All right, it's three. They'll make a big hit in Finland just before you freeze to death. And... This is what it this is what the case is. The entire case is just the negligee in its many parts. And slippers. And slippers. Little furry pink slippers. But I just I, I get that it's supposed to be cute, but I'm just like, that's not what he meant when he said one case of yeah. everything. But okay. <laughs> but that's what she puts all of her night gear in, is just that tiny little case. But that's yeah, that's her point. It's what what it is, I think, is it's that that compromise, right? Where she's not becoming him. She is still herself. She is just making those compromises to fit in his life. Yeah. Yeah. And he is making none. But it's not a complete compromise is my point. She's not changing who she is. And we get that by the last shot of the movie. And we'll we'll see that a little bit later. Okay. So they're doing their stakeout, right? And it's real sad. Yep. Miss Lonely Heart goes out on the town. She bags a man. And when she takes him back to her apartment... All he wants to do is have sex with her. 
And she wants nothing more than romance and a relationship. Mm -hmm. And so when he starts necking, (laughs) she gets upset and kicks him out. And then she cries. Very sad. So devastating. But don't worry, guys. She'll find love. (laughs) Everyone gets their little story wrapped up around the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not everyone. That newlywed couple has a weird ending to their story. They really do. <laughs> I mean, we can tell it right now, but it's like <laughs> the 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 husband is like oversexed. Like she Well, because I constantly don't know. brings him back into the bedroom. I don't know that it's always for sex. The idea is just that she's taking over his life. And yeah. Like well, he, he comes out and he he's never wearing never has a minute to have a cigarette. He's nothing. wearing an undershirt and he looks exhausted and he goes to the window to have a cigarette and then she immediately calls him back. Yeah. He's like, "Uh, and this happens throughout the movie." But that's not what we're talking about. The ending for this couple is them Having breakfast, and the wife, now nagging, because apparently Uh that's all wives do. The honeymoon period is over. Saying, if I had known you were going to quit your job, I wouldn't have married you. And it's like, what? Quit his job? What just happened? (laughs) Is that supposed to be because she was calling to him all the time that he couldn't have a job anymore? or I don't Or is it just random and spontaneous? I don't. No. Yeah. And it's really weird. And it's just like, I don't, again, like, it I don't seemed know. like she was, she was, she came off as ungrateful, which is a weird thing. It seemed like that's what they were if trying to communicate. If you came home and told me you'd quit your job, I would be so mad. I know. I'm saying, <laughs> trying to say what the movie is saying. Especially back then. Cause she wasn't, back then, the woman didn't fucking work. Yep. So what else happens this night? Well, Jeff's friend convinces them that they're wrong Mm -hmm. through all the things that he says he convinces them that they're wrong and it's an interesting line because they're both kind of upset by this because they were kind of having fun and i know that sounds fucked up and that's what she says here it's kind of frightening we're ghouls for being upset that this woman is alive yeah plunged into despair because we find out a man didn't kill his wife we're two of the most frightening ghouls i've ever known You'd think we could be a little bit happy that the poor woman is alive and well. And that's an interesting idea. Because its I don't think they were excited that a murder took place. But I think it was exciting to think that they had discovered it and that they were going to put this person behind bars. And I don't think that their sadness comes from the idea that she's alive. I think the sadness comes from the idea that their little adventure they were doing is over. Yeah, is now over. Yeah. And I think that that is supposed to feed into the whole Jeffries really does love her Mm. and she has this side to her that he really likes and he wouldn't have known that if this hadn't happened. Right. And they they sort of settle down for the night when... They wake up to a scream uh-huh. because the dog is dead. Yep, that poor little dog. The it's, dog that kept going after that guy's garden. It was strangled and its neck was broken. So everybody comes to their window to hear this woman screaming. And she's talking about how they aren't good neighbors. She admonishes neighbors. everyone. Yeah. yeah. Which one of you did it? Which one of you killed my dog? Oh, get it over the meaning of the word neighbors. Neighbors like each other, speak to each other, care if anybody lives or dies, but none of you do. But I couldn't imagine any of you being so 
And how, you know, neighbors are supposed to care about each other. And this kind of... It's like the theme, one of the themes of the movie. Right. But that kind of feeds into my my essay about you don't trust anybody, you don't like anybody, uh-huh. everyone is a possible enemy. And it comes from there, right, right from that speech but that she But the point gives. is, is that she is really loud. And she is giving everyone what for. Up at... Dave from Alvin and the Chipmunks is having a party up in his sort of penthousey apartment, and everyone from the party's coming out to hear what's going on. Everyone is out there to listen to this woman berate them, except for one person. And it's a great shot because they're just looking in to Lars's apartment, and all they see is a lit cigar, mm-hmm. the light from that cigar. Of him just sitting in his chair in the dark in his living room, not going out to the window to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. The implication is he knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yes. That kind of cinches it for Jeff. Yeah. And Grace Kelly. But one little quick thing I want to say. What we see up in the... <laughs> Up in Dave's apartment. Yeah. Well, he's <laughs> We're just going to keep calling him Dave. He doesn't have a name. He's just the songwriter. The pianist. Yeah, the pianist. <laughs> so he's having this big party. And at one point we see him kind of, he's sitting towards the window. The rest of the party is going on. And he's just sitting there and he's very obviously depressed. Yeah, there's a whole party there at his apartment and he's not into it. And again, a lot of this idea is that in the 50s, you know, everybody had a mask on. Pretense. Mm -hmm. Nobody was honest with anybody about how they were feeling or what they were thinking, which is why we had so many- uh, Serial killers? Yeah, so many serial killers (laughs) come out of this time period. But yeah, so because the dog is dead, of course, Jeff starts to put things together and he shows pictures of the flowers showing that certain flowers are now lower than they used to be because something was clearly buried there. Yeah, at the very least, the flowers were dug up and replanted and they assume the dog was killed because it has a habit of digging in the flower bed. They make arguments about how how are you going to fit a body in there? There's only enough space to bury it straight up. But the conclusion that they come to is, well, remember, we saw the handsaw. We saw the knife. He chopped that body up. Just how would you go about cutting a body up? Mm -hmm. You're beginning to scare me. But so they have the idea to send a letter. Yeah. And she goes. We know what you're doing this summer. Lisa's going to deliver this note. She's going to go over to Torvald's apartment and slide it under the door. And she needs to get out of there before he, like, he picks up the letter. He reads it. He immediately he runs outside. Opens the door. Yeah. And she's got to hide. Yes. She's got to hide. And Jeff is really, really worried about her. But it's also thrilling in the way, in a way. When she comes back all excited. Did he read it? What da 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 this is like a new side of Lisa that he's never seen before. But there's something really terrible going on at the same time. Yeah. They're pretty much getting confirmation of his guilt at this point. No, there's something even worse oh. going on. Uh-huh. Miss Lonely Hearts is committing suicide during all of this. Yeah. Stella recognizes the pills that she has are as She's sleeping a nurse. pills. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
So she starts to think Lonely Hearts is going to commit suicide. Yep. And it's really sad because I get that they're focused on this murderer, but at the same time, it's like they keep kind of forgetting that this other that this thing is, is happening. This is a real woman whose life is in danger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they decide to take more action, that they need to dig up the Rose Garden and figure out exactly what's buried there. And Jeff does not like that both women are like, we're just going to go. Yeah. He's like, what the fuck? No, you can't go. That's way too dangerous. And they're just like, what are you going to do about it? You're in a chair. So they go. <laughs> well, he calls Lars and says, Did you get my note? Well, did you get it for a while? Who are you? I'll give you a chance to find out. Meet me in the bar at the Albert Hotel. Do it right away. Why should I? Little business meeting to settle the estate of your late wife. I don't know what you mean. Come on, quit stalling, Thorwald, or I'll hang up and call the police. I have only a hundred dollars or so. That's a start. I'm at the Albert now. I'll be looking for you. Yes. And so Lars leaves, and that's when they go. They bring a shovel. They dig up the flower garden. there's nothing there. And they find nothing. And so Lisa's like, I'm going to go look in that purse upstairs. I'm going to break into his apartment and look in the purse. He also admits guilt here when he says, what do you want? I only have $100. Yeah. So he knows he's trying to pay somebody off. Yeah. Admitting guilt. So Stella goes back to the apartment and is like, she insisted on going back inside. And she does. She climbs in through the open window. Yes. And these women are climbing around in dresses, skirts, heels. And I'm just like... it's awesome. <laughs> but anyway, Miss Lonely Hearts is now getting ready to take a big pile of pills while Lisa is doing something that Jeff absolutely doesn't want her to do. And then Lars is coming home. And so he needs to do something. He ends up calling the police. Uh, he tells them a woman is being attacked. Yes. And she is. He goes into his house, he catches her, he grabs her. I think he hits her. He yeah, he might hit her, but I mean he could he could easily be like, she didn't she broke into my house. Like yes. I understand that. But what has she found? So the police show up and in all the commotion, Miss Lonely Hearts never gets around to killing herself. Why? What stops her? I don't remember. The music. Oh right. The music yes. Stopped her. Dave's music. Dave's music. She stops her. She hears the song and she's like, oh. She hears the beautiful music and that reminds her of how beautiful life can be. Uh-huh. But anyway. You don't know what this music has meant to me. The police show up and they start questioning everybody. And it's very obvious that Lisa's going to get arrested. But as she's standing there being held with her hands behind her back by the police and, and they're talking to her and she's explaining what's going on. She has her hand out. And she points to her ring finger where there is a ring there. And Jeff sees, I found the ring. But who else sees what she's doing? Burr. Raymond Burr sees it. And he looks down. He looks at her, sees that she has the ring on, sees that she's pointing to it. By the way, knows he can't say anything in front of the police. Hmm. And then he looks across the courtyard and sees Stella and Jeff across the street. And they back up. Oh, oh, he can't back, see us. He can't see us. They do this a lot. They constantly. Get back, get back, get back. <laughs> and Jeff sends 
Stella to the police station with, they hope, enough money to bail her out. And it seems like Jeff knows the exact amount of money that it's going to be because he's gone on many an adventure and gone places where he shouldn't be. So it's like he knows, but they don't have enough. And Stella's like, whatever, all, all Lisa has to do is smile and they'll let her go. Get my billfold out of the drawer on the table there. Why do you need money? Oh, I'm going to bail Lisa out of jail. You know, you could leave it here till next Tuesday. Then you could sneak safely away as well. Oh, let's see. $127. How much do you need? Well, this is first offense burglary. That's about $250. Lisa's handbag. Yeah. How much do you have? <laughs> 50 cents. Here, take this. And look, I got $20 or so in my purse. Give me what, what you got. Rest? What about the rest? Most cops see Lisa, they'll even contribute. And she leaves, so now Jeff is left on his own. And then the cops take away Lisa. And the only people that are left are Jeff and Lars. And when he looks back across the street, Lars is gone. Yes. And this is a very suspenseful scene. I don't know that I believe it, but it's very well shot. It's very suspenseful. Yeah. So Lars. Gets your heart pumping. Shows up. How believable is it? He shows up. He <laughs> closes the door behind him and they're all kind of in darkness. And Lars asks him questions like, who are you? What do you want? And Jeff just does not respond. He stays perfectly quiet. Until they end up talking a little bit. All that Jeff has on him is his camera and the flash, which he was going to use to signal them when Lars was coming back home. You see, guys, there was a time when a camera required an actual bulb. Does that sound wasteful? (laughs) It does, because it was. And it flashes and it immediately breaks breaks the filament and so they got to replace it. Anyway, as Lars approaches him... He flashes the light bulb and it blinds him. And there's this cool effect where the screen turns orange and it like gets smaller in a circle, which is really what happens when you get a light flashed in your eyes. Right. But why wouldn't he just shut his eyes? Yeah. He was just like, oh, because every single time (laughs) Jimmy Stewart is like covering his eyes and then flashes it. There's no reason why Lars wouldn't have been like, oh, I know you're going to flash it. I'm going to cover my say. He's just like, I'm slowly walking towards you. Eyes wide. (laughs) Flash. Oh, my eyes. Okay, I'm going to try this again. Don't flash me. I see that you're changing the bulb. I see that you are covering your eyes. I'm still going to walk slowly towards you, eyes wide. But again, it's the white light of truth Uh that takes down the reds. (laughs) Yes. And so he he finally gets to him and they struggle. And he, he goes to throw him out the window. And Jeff is just hanging there. Meanwhile... The police show back up. Yeah, you might be thinking, hey, wait a minute, isn't there a whole gaggle of people watching? Yes, there is. Is he really going to ki- try to kill him in front of everybody? Yes, He's desperate, he man. <laughs> and so the police show up with Doyle, who figured out, yes, Lisa had the wedding ring. That was cause enough for us to suspect this guy. They see him hanging out the window and everyone's freaking out. And the cops go two places. Under the window and up to the apartment. And when Jeff falls, there's kind of a cool, almost like, hey, it's Vertigo shot of him falling. <laughs> and the cops upstairs bust in and they arrest Lars. Later on, we find out through Doyle that he admitted to everything. Everything that you suspected was absolutely true, which was pretty interesting. I think the one thing that they, that the one clue that they talk about that we don't mention is... He's making a long distance call 
And Doyle assumes, well, he had to make sure his wife got there. And Jimmy Stewart's like, well, then why did she send him a postcard saying that she arrived? Mm -hmm. If not to just like cement the story, Mm -hmm. you know, knowing that somebody might read it. Yeah. So that's pretty interesting. But yeah, he admits it all that he had, in fact, killed his wife. But now Jeff has two broken legs. Yes. And And now she wears pants. And she's reading a magazine about adventure or something. And then he falls asleep in front of the window again. And she puts down the magazine about adventure and then picks up the Bazaar magazine. Harper's Bazaar. And reads that to show that, yes, she had fun. She really likes this adventure thing. It's something that they can bond over. But she still is herself. But you'll notice it's something she waits for him to go to sleep to do. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but it's, I mean, for back then, probably pretty damn progressive. 1954? Sure. <laughs> it was like a, uh, it, it was a relationship that was aspirational, you know? Oh, and the other couple got a new dog. Yes. And they were teaching it how to go to the bathroom using the basket. Yes. Yeah, uh-huh. hmm And Miss Lonely Hearts tells oh, yeah. Dave... Yeah, they end up together. Uh huh. Dave, Miss Torso's husband comes home, who's like super short and nerdy. Uh huh. I thought that but was. But she fun. loves him so much. I thought that was fun, but I'm uh-huh. like, still at the same time, she kind of kissed a guy while you were gone. Uh huh. Okay. <laughs> Kept going out on dates with dudes. Bobby, don't consider it cheating. I guess. <laughs> Let's call him Bobby. That's his new name. <laughs> and that is Rear Window. What'd you think, Kels? It's so good. It is a wonderful story of paranoia. Gets your heart pumping. Every time she's in danger, you're like, oh, God. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. When he is You walk- don't want anything bad to happen to Grace Kelly. You do not want anything bad to happen to Grace Kelly. She is amazing. And she's so beautiful. And she's so much fun. And uh, Jimmy Stewart is great every time. It's Even though they track. try to play him off as being young, Stella calls him a young man. And it's like there's less than a decade between the two of you. <laughs> There's a bigger gap between him and her than between him and Stella. Yes. Yeah. So like, and and, people talk about that, about the age difference between the two and how they were like normalizing that women have to be young and men age gracefully or whatever. But he does. But I mean, he's Jimmy Stewart. Well, but he aged gracefully. (laughs) I mean, there was a time when it was Mm -hmm. everybody expected older gentlemen to marry young ladies. Right. Like that was. But I mean, think expected. about think about It's a Wonderful Life when he plays the younger version of himself the and kid. he's like a college football player, a high school football player, and it's fucking Jimmy Stewart, full grown <laughs> older man <laughs> in a football uniform. Yeah. Anyway, very, very good. Very tense. Very inventive. The set's so creative. The audio is incredible because, like I said, it's except for the very, very beginning of the movie. All of the music is diegetic from Dave or from radios, and that's it. Yeah, the whole world feels very real and alive with having all the different neighbors doing all sorts of different things. You can see down the alleyway, cars are driving by. They do a really good job of that. Like, you know it's a set, but it's a very impressive one. Yes. Yeah. Times when we had sets. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I like it a whole hell of a lot. It's one of my favorite Hitchcock movies. It is very, very good. What do you think it has on Rotten Tomatoes? 97? Very close. Is it 100? It's 98. There you go. 
Hitchcock exerted full potential of suspense in this masterpiece. Metacritic of 100. So they're obviously not using the same reviews that Rotten Tomatoes is using. Because there are two negative reviews. So they can't be an average of 100. But the Metacritic reviews are 100. Do you think that that is overrated or underrated? 98. You know what? I am off the rails this year. I gave faculty 98, which kind of blows my mind when I think about that it. It is kind of nuts. And I am kind of kicking myself for not giving Poltergeist 100 now that I'm about to do this. Mm-hmm. I'll give it 100, even though it kind of deserves half a point off because it's unbelievable that he would keep walking with his eyes open. That part is literally the only part that I'm just like, I don't buy it. Uh huh. If I would be smart enough to close my eyes, that guy would be smart enough to close his eyes. So maybe it should be a 99.5, but I will give it 100 just because I'm off the rails this year. I'm going crazy. Yeah, I, I gave Psycho 100. I can't believe I'm going to do that. I'm going to give it a 99. It's very good. It is an excellent film. It's. High, one of my highest recommendations I could get. It is entertaining from start to finish. There is never a slow part. There's never a part where you're like, oh, come on, I don't care about this. Every single part is integral to the story or it is interesting or funny. This is a movie that I would literally recommend to anybody. Yeah. Like, my parents and I, our movie preferences are nothing alike. And I would still say if they haven't seen this movie that they should. Some people might think it's boring because he doesn't go anywhere or do anything. A lot of observing, but not a lot happening. Yeah. But in if in my opinion, if you walk away from this film thinking it was boring, you weren't paying attention. Yeah. I agree. I think you're absolutely right. So that is 1954's Rear Window. Moving on to our next movie. Disturbia from 2007, written by Christopher Landon and Carl Ellsworth. Christopher Landon, by the way, wrote all of the Paranormal Activity sequels. He wrote Happy Death Day to You, and he wrote Freaky, which I heard not great things about, even though it was exciting to see the trailer. We're like, oh, that seems interesting. Mm -hmm. But we heard not good things from people we know who saw it. Mm -hmm. It is directed by DJ Caruso and stars Shia LaBeouf. David Morse, and Carrie-Anne Moss. This is effectively the same general plot, somebody stuck in their home. Yeah, it is insane to me that they weren't forced to say this is a remake. So here's the story. I told you that Rear Window was based off of a short story by Cornell Woolrich, right? The short story is called It Had to Be Murder. Okay. They sued a bunch of people because of this movie. They sued DreamWorks. They sued Paramount Pictures, and they sued Steven Spielberg, who is a producer. I mean, he's the S in DreamWorks SKG, because they didn't get permission to use the story in It Had to Be Murder. Way after the movie came out, a couple years afterwards, a judge ruled against the estate of not whoever it is that owns the copyright of It Had to Be Murder, because apparently... Quote, the main plots are similar, only at a high, unprotectable level of generality. Where Disturbia is rife with subplots, the short story has none. The setting and mood of the short story are static and tense, whereas the setting and mood of Disturbia are more dynamic and peppered with humor and teen romance. So, in general, it has the same plot. It's about a man... So basically what you're saying is because it's a more younger, watered-down version... They don't have to call it a remake. Well, 
I would remind you that it's very similar to the same exact things that go on in What Lies Beneath, Fright Night, The Burbs. This is the same exact general plot line. Somebody stuck in their house, watches their neighbor, thinks that they're a murderer, and tries to prove that even though nobody believes them. Okay. When it comes to Fright Night, you don't get to say that because it's a vampire. It is a whole other genre. Oh, interesting. So I disagree. Interesting. So even though that core thing overlaps perfectly, and that's all that they could claim, that's the only similarities to the original story, you're fine because Fright Night diverts enough. What about the burbs? What about what lies beneath? Okay, what lies beneath, I do not see your argument. I don't see the analogy. I get that there is a part where she thinks that happened, but that is such a small part of the story. I disagree completely. But... That's the entire inciting incident. But that is not at all what it ends up being. Yeah, that's my point. This is entirely my point. Disturbia. Uh Uh-huh. Aside from like you, the uh, the one thing I will admit to is that it doesn't have a bunch of side stories. Uh Uh-huh. And guess what? That just means it's watered down. Like it doesn't change the core plot at all. And right, I but guess I'm, the burbs, I'm, I'm telling you that I guess it doesn't... you could definitely make an argument for the burbs. And Fright Night. Uh, no, I'm telling you, Fright Night doesn't get that. It is a vampire movie. So? Who cares? Why does that mean... Completely different genre. And this is a different genre as well, I would argue. Because he's a serial killer and not just a one-timer. And, like they say, the teen comedy and romance, which is not what Rear Window's about. There's plenty of romance in... Uh, no. Rear window. There's adult romance a little bit. Oh my god, you just made yourself sound super old. You're saying that there is a big enough difference between an adult relationship and a teenage relationship? Yes. Oh my god, yes. They literally have a conversation where she says, I don't know if I can see you again. When am I gonna see you? Not until tomorrow. Are you kidding me? That's that's, not supposed to be a silly, comical, teenage relationship issue. It's interesting that you point out an instance that happens in Rear Window and not in Disturbia. I'm pointing out that there is a teenage romance moment there. And no, that's a reality. That's we talked about how it, real that is. I yes, not it's very real because teens. we are all children on no, the inside. Yeah, but that, uh, mm, 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 mm. No, there there are a lot of differences, you especially. Told me that didn't sound like a five year old. Especially she said the fact that he employs. There's a lot of the the camera work. They go inside of his house. His mother is put into immediate danger. Who is not somebody who is participating in the caper. All these things are things that happen. That aren't the same. Just like, just like in Fright Night, it's the same exact fucking thing, but with a vampire. Like, I don't know why just because it's a vampire, all of a sudden it's completely different. But all these other differences I'm explaining about Disturbia don't qualify it. Yes, it is similar. It is very obviously inspired by and influenced by it. But it is not at a, what the judge calls, a protectable level. I disagree. Well, that's not what the law is. It's so funny because you and I disagree about public domain. I'm more liberal with public domain than you are. And... Because I don't think that anyone should be able to use Mickey. I don't get that argument. I under... (laughs) Like, I don't think anybody should be able to use Mari. 
scenario. Like, I don't think that that should just be that anybody gets to just be like, I'm just going to make my own weird-ass show about Mario or Mickey, and I get to do whatever Mm -hmm. I want with them because it's open domain. I think that that's wrong. They are the face of a logo. They are the face of an entire corporation. And you want that face. And that's the only reason. Anybody can do whatever they want And that's the only reason you think that is because you've bought into that (laughs) capitalist ideal that a large organization owns this thing and that's how you associate with them is through this logo. Whereas Sherlock Holmes, HP Lovecraft, Robinson Crusoe. Other than a character. Because it can't. Mickey represents an entire corporation. Now I'm not trying to say that Disney is not an (laughs) evil corporation. We're going way off screen. What I'm saying is Mickey deserves to be protected. He is an ambassador for children, and you want anyone to be able to do whatever they want with that. And that's a problem for me. Well, yeah, you. there are downsides to it. There are downsides to keeping it like it is, though. Basically, nothing new is getting entered into the public domain. That's a bad thing. But I guess it is similar. Like, you are still on the side of protecting the copyright holder of the original story. But what I'm saying is copyright doesn't protect it because it's a general concept. You can't protect a general concept that anyone could have come up with. A neighbor suspects his neighbor of being a murderer is not enough to protect. Right. But it's not just that. It's the fact that he's stuck inside. That's another thing. They didn't do that in Fright Night. He wasn't stuck inside. He could he could go out and do whatever he wanted to do. They did it in the Burbs. Remember, he was on sort He's of on forced. Vacation. He was on a forced leave from He's his work. On a forced vacation, but his wife specifically wanted to go out and do something. He didn't. That was a choice. Now I I see the argument for the Burbs. I do, but I think that the Burbs is so wacky and so silly that it it gets that because it's it's almost like a parody if you want to think of it that way. Whereas this is... All I'm saying... It even has to do with his leg, why he can't leave the house. (laughs) But it also adds a new dynamic that the police won't legally allow him to leave. Even though he is physically capable, the police demand that he stay in home and will arrest him if he ever leaves. And that becomes part of the plot. And like, that's what I'm saying. There's so many differences that, yes, the elevator pitch... Maybe you could argue it's the same, but it's the same for all these other movies I'm mentioning too. It's just instead of murderer, we have vampire. Instead of murderer, we have cannibals. Instead of murderer, we have, oh no, wait, what lies beneath is still murderer. It's only later that we find out that it might be a ghost story, and then it turns out it is. (laughs) Anyway, listen to all those episodes. We have covered all of those movies, and it's so funny that we're just now getting to Rear Window. But anyway... Disturbia. We already kind of basically told you what it's all about. You can watch it on HBO or DirecTV if you're a subscriber. You can rent it for $4 or buy it for about $14, but it is $5 on Amazon and $7 on Vudu if you want to get it cheaper. Should people watch Disturbia? I would say yes. I I know he's crazy, but I love Shia. I I yeah, truly uh-huh. think he is a talented actor. He's also, yes, very attractive. So that absolutely fed into why I liked this movie as much as I did when I first saw it. Absolutely. But I truly do think he's talented. And I do think that this is a good, for me, it is a good modernization of Rear Window. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a good way to modernize it. Now, watching it now that I'm older, 
I see problems with the way that they do the female lead. She's certainly no fucking Grace <sighs> Kelly. Well, they do that thing and again. And I do not mean that as in like her looks or anything. I mean that she is not a strong, competent, confident It's a mess. Lady. The entire Ashley subplot is absolutely a mess. They do that thing that they always try to do where they pair up Shia LaBeouf and his bumbling Hugh Grantness, hyperactive Hugh Grantness with a stunning supermodel type woman and they just consistently do that over and over again and it's like i don't have a problem with mm. him being with a beautiful woman that's not my problem my problem but that's is a, my problem is that's the whole story that's all it is yeah. oh absolutely their relationship is based on nothing aside from you're hot and but incredibly you know unbelievable they're in high school like, oh you're the weirdo what high school's about you're a weirdo who can't even carry on a social interaction and you've been watching me undress in my bedroom and watching me swim in a bikini and i'm not totally horrified because he's shia labeouf he's not that good looking i disagree <laughs> he really isn't a lot of women disagree with you apparently but yes it is just because he's shia but also she part of her character is that she's a bad, like, she likes the bad boys. She likes mm -hmm. to be the bad girl. She goes out and does things that she knows she shouldn't do because she thinks it's exciting. So it's exciting to her to have a guy next to her that is a bad boy and that he did something to get stuck inside his house for house arrest, but he also seems sweet and bumbling, as you say. That's, like, exactly what she's looking for. Mm -hmm. Apparently. Anyway. You don't understand women, Chris. You're right. I absolutely don't. <laughs> I love you. So should people watch this? I love you too. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like you say, it's a good modernization. It's not great. We are absolutely not going to give it as high a score as we gave to Rear Window. Not nope. even close. But it's it's worth watching it's as a modern retelling of Rear Window. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of places where it just falls short. The and ending been way is better. always super off-putting. I do not enjoy the ending. Not because I think it's like uncomfortable or anything. It's just, it's so over the top that you're just like, seriously? Uh-huh. He has this many bodies floating around <laughs> in his fucking... Spoilers, okay. Kelsey. <laughs> anyway, you can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 2007's Disturbia. I am sentencing you to three months house arrest. Oh my God. I wasn't trying to go anywhere. On April 13th. Are you spying on the neighbors? Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's creepy. What'd you see? What? All right, that's it. When no one believes you. Now on the ground. There's a body in his garage. No one can help you. You're not the only one who's watching. Disturbia. Rated PG-13. In theaters Friday, April 13th. All right, Kelsey, get us started. How does Disturbia begin? We meet Shia LaBeouf, whose name is Kale. His name is Kale! I cannot believe his name is Kale. His name is Kale. That's a fucking joke. I know there are real people whose names are Kale. There might be people listening right now. And I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. But, I mean, I also think that Braden and Caden and Jaden are stupid names. And I know there are people out there that have them. <laughs> but it's like, it's like a joke that a black comic would tell to make fun of white people names. Like, that's what it is. The point is, I'm a, I'm a teacher, so I've seen so many names. Guys, 
when you name your kid and you think you're being super, like, original, first of all, you're not being original. If you've got a name, I've at least heard it. Maybe not seen it spelled the way you chose to spell it, but I promise you I've heard it. There are no unique names. And when you decide to get a super quote-unquote unique name, it just stands out as pretentious and I'm just saying it doesn't stand out in a good way, guys. The worst thing that ever happened to people named Kale is that the food Kale was classified as a superfood. That's the worst thing that ever happened because now Kale's everywhere and it's in everything. And now all your name is Lettuce. I'm sorry your name is Lettuce. It's just so funny because there's names out there. Like, for example, when the Hunger Games came out, everybody was like, what silly names, right? Now people are actually naming their children those names, right? And people are like, oh, I actually really like the name PETA. And it's so hilarious. To All me I can think of is pita bread. Well, well, yeah. He's a baker. He bakes bread. Well, yeah. But I knew a pita. I've known yes. a pita. I knew a pita. So if you think your name is unique, it isn't. <laughs> I, knew, I knew a pita, and it was a woman. And it was fine. It was. It's. Ju- I'm just pointing out. If you think your name is unique, it's not. Yeah, and don't express yourself. Through your child's name that they're going to have to live with for the rest of their fucking life. That they life. have to put on tests. That they have to put on resumes. Like, yes. come on, guys. Think about that when you name your child. Okay. Anyway, he is fishing with his father. Fly fishing. Yeah. And they are having a grand old time. If there's one thing that Shia LaBeouf is good at, it's really charming ad-libbing. He's very, very good at that. I will give him that. And that's what's going on here is they're just having like conversations like nothing really matters. Nothing's plot important. It's just a man and his son bonding. He's a talented actor. Yeah. Shame about all the other stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, he is then driving home with his dad talking on the phone to his mom, who is Trinity, by the way. How often do we get to see Trinity in a movie? She does not pop up very often. Not very often, no. So it's always exciting to see her on screen. Yeah. Not that I think she's a super talented actress or anything. She's okay. She comes from a great movie and you just never see her. I just know her from like, okay, well, I said great movie. Yes, the first Matrix is a great movie. Yeah, don't (laughs) you dare say anything about the first Matrix. (laughs) I'm just saying the series is not... Good. I'm sorry. We're finally going to have to see three. We're going to have to see three because four's coming out. Oh, my God. But also Memento. Oh, right. I forget that she's She's great in Memento. She is. Oh, man. She's awful. Yes, but like in a great way. Yeah. You do not like her. So, yeah, she she is a good actress. But anyway, so they're on the phone driving. And, you know, just like in... The loved ones. He's going to be, he's going to feel responsible for his father's death because oh, he's yes. driving. Yes. Uh-huh. But this one is just like in that one. Totally not his fault. Just like in the loved ones, it's completely not his fault. Uh-huh. A car pulls out in front of them, driving very fast, and it's a huge car, so they can't see around him. The car in front of them swerves out of the way because there is a car that's like, 
in the middle of the road? Right, yeah. I uh-huh. guess it's be- probably because from what you could see, it's kind of a thin road, so yeah. there's not a lot of space but for that them. But that guy, the car in front of them, which is big and blocking the view, had the entire length of the street to get around this car, waited to the last second to swerve around, almost like he was intentionally trying to get the car behind him to hit it. It's very weird, but you know what traffic law would say? You were going too fast and too close. Yes. If... You don't have enough time to respond to that car in front of you slamming on the brakes or swerving out of the way of something, then you're too close and you're going too fast. Mm-hmm. So in a way, he has some blame here, but still, it's a ridiculous scenario that nobody could like anticipate. Yes. They hit the car, which uh-huh. causes them to tumble, tumble end over end, yeah. Car is <laughs> upside down. So they're both okay. But what happens here is a car slams into them. Yeah. Another car that had the entire length of... If The only way you could explain that they got into this accident is that the car that was just sitting in the middle of the road was suddenly revealed to them when they had no time to react. What about the cars in front of and behind Kale and his father who had the entire length of street to respond to their car in the middle of the road and still managed to last minute swerve or slam directly into them nobody pays attention anymore chris yeah mm -hmm. nobody pays attention to the road anyways in an unbelievable accident shy is able to get out and his his dad dad is not is crushed Mm -hmm. and so now it's towards the end of the school year i wasn't paying attention to the timeline but this happened before the school year ended now it's the very end of the school year and shia labeouf has very obviously and unsurprisingly retreated into himself, yeah, right? he's got a bad attitude. Right. <laughs> but, okay, again, I'm a teacher. The way a te- this teacher behaves is ridiculous. Oh, yeah. When you find out that your kids, one of your students' parents dies, it's an unwritten, like, you leave the kid alone. Well, also, you don't, you don't bother them, and when they do act up, you are patient and kind with them. And and if you're going to say your father would be ashamed of you or whatever it is he says, you don't do it in the middle of class in front of everyone. Give me one good reason why I shouldn't fail you right now. What would your father think? Yeah. What like- the fuck are you doing? That teacher deserve to get punched in the face. I know he meant well, and I know Shia was being a dickhead. That does not excuse what that teacher was doing. Later, Shia LaBeouf will refer to this as, I popped my teacher. Uh-huh. And it's just like... <sighs> That's what a pop is, is a Who punch in the face. that? That's I a thing. Him. No, it's a thing. What? No. Listen, just because you're a girl and you don't talk about punching people very much. Oh, my God. It <laughs> sounded like it was out of the 40s. I popped him one. No, I, absolutely. That's, that's what it means. Oh, my God. But anyway, and we also get to meet here in this class his best friend. Yeah. Who was making Spanish jokes? Well, yeah, because when you say quizás, it sounds uh-huh. like kissass. So he was making it sound more and more like that. Like he's saying kissass a bunch. What is his name? The character's name is Ronnie. He's played by Aaron Yu. 
who we've seen not on this show, but I've seen him. He was in the... Uh... We have seen him on this show. Oh, we have. I yes. was going to say I know him from that gambling movie. 21. With Kevin Spacey. Yes. No, you're going to kick yourself when you... There's no way I would ever in a million years expect you to remember this, but as soon as I say it, I think you're going to. <laughs> He's Chewy from Friday the 13th, the remake. Oh. I think he, he dies in the dies shed. Right in the beginning. He's there. They're ha- they're partying in the house with the big window wall thing. And oh, there's music I playing do remember. And Isn't he like wearing like a mask or he something? He like sneaks in or something. I remember. I think he dies in a shed with like some sort of tool, kills him. I don't know. But yes, he is in that. We have seen him on this show before. You're right. Aaron Yu. But yeah, so thankfully, I mean, it has to do with this for the story, but like very believably. The judge is like, I get it, your dad died, and this guy was a dick to you, so you punched him. Like, it's just like, yeah, I understand this. It's just, it, This is why I'm going easy on you. Yeah, so he gets two months in the house, house, house arrest. arrest. And so his whole summer is screwed. Yep. <laughs> and the mother is very unsympathetic, and it's just like, do you not believe, I guess, I don't know. It, because the teacher's behavior is so unbelievable that I, I understand that she would be like, I don't believe that he talked to you that way because yeah. I don't believe that There's he talked no to you that There's no reason to either. punch your teacher in the face. And legitimately, there isn't. There, there may be very few extreme cases where you might punch your teacher in the face. If I ever said to one of my students whose dad died earlier that year that his dad would be ashamed of him, I would hope my student would punch him in the face. <laughs> It would be one thing if maybe the teacher didn't know, or if the teacher was mad about something else, or brought something else to be the problem. Uh-huh. I just cannot believe that a teacher would say, your dead dad would be ashamed of you. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> and so, Shai is in an interesting position here on, when he gets under house arrest for two reasons. Number one, the officer who sets everything up, or I don't know if she's an officer or not, at the very least she works for whatever organization sets all this up and charges these fees. Oh, we she's in Suicide Squad. Yeah, it's Viola Davis. Yeah. Yeah. But the other thing is that his supervisory officer, the one who's responsible for checking in on him, is the cousin of the teacher that he punched in the face. Yeah, and that's And seems, nobody sees a conflict of yeah, interest. Yeah, nobody there. thinks that's a conflict of interest. And he even brings it up. It's just like Like any officer could be the one in charge of this yeah. kid. You do not put that one in charge of it's this kid. Dumb. It's the stupidest fucking thing. It's okay. He dies. <laughs> He's an asshole. He is a big asshole. But so that is why he is stuck in his house, just like in Rear Window. Kelsey, let me ask you a question. Yes. Did Shia's house look familiar to you at all? I already know where they filmed it. Yeah. They filmed this in Whittier, right? They did, yeah. Like... Just a couple blocks from where you and I lived in Whittier. Oh, really? Yes, it's on Painter. Oh my gosh! Just north of Whittier College, where Kelsey got her bachelor's. That is so cool. It was before I was there. Wait, was it before I was there? What year did this come out? Two thousand seven. Oh yeah, that was yeah, before uh-huh. I was there. Right beforehand, like but- literally, like. The year before. But, ah! I mean, the uh, the big claim to fame that Whittier has in movies is that Uptown Whittier is where they filmed Masters of the Universe. So now we have this, where the entire neighborhood that this movie takes place in is on Painter. So Damn. there's one house south, one house across the street. The only house that's not on Painter is 
David Morse's house. That's in Pasadena. But otherwise, like his house, her house, the guy who's having an affair across the street, that's all right there on Painter. You can drive by there right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, those houses do look very familiar because uh-huh. we've driven by them. Yeah. Uh, and I love those house, that house style, but mm-hmm. I don't want to live But that was here. like <laughs> really, really close to where Kelsey and I lived for a couple years. Mm-hmm. But so, yeah, so because he's stuck in there uh, and he very quickly forgets that he can't leave his property because of flaming dog poop. Yeah, he uh, chases after these kids and... It sets the thing off. He doesn't get back within 10 seconds, and the police show up just as the new family is moving in next door, and the hot girl sees him getting arrested. Yes. That's cool as shit, though. You don't think that gives you cred? <laughs> no, it does. That's exactly yeah. why she's probably attracted to him uh-huh. in the beginning. But so, yeah, so he starts to map out the house. So that he does not have that happen. Yeah, he sets up a perimeter of when the ankle monitor starts beeping. Which is how he starts to notice all of his neighbors. Again, so there's the kids across the street who are antagonizing him. There's the hot girl next door. There's the quiet man who lives by himself next door. And I think that's really all that we get to meet. Yeah, that's about it. We don't have a big ensemble like we do in In Rear Window. Or the Burbs or... Yeah, uh uh-huh. We also, I want to point out here, because we're going to get an understanding of Kale's life, what it's like. He plays a lot of Xbox, and oh my god, the Xbox 360 Blade interface took me back. (laughs) Like, there is a very specific, like, two years where that was the interface for video games from, like, late 05 to sometime in 07, and that's it, but it's still like it's ingrained in our, in our brains. And a big Apple commercial. There's a lot of talk about all the Apple products. Oh, is there? Yeah, like iPods and Oh, that's iTunes. 60 or 30 gigs of my life or 60 yeah. gigs of my life. And it's just like, yes, real, but mm-hmm. also super lame. <laughs> they, talk, they talk about iTunes. So, yeah, it's a big Apple and Xbox commercial, which is really weird. And then at the end, there's going to be a lot of talk about YouTube. So, like, this is when – this is in the early days of YouTube. So – When do they talk about YouTube? At the, after the – Oh, this in is the going to blow up on YouTube. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And it's like – it seemed like it was a commercial. Like, these companies paid to have this these products placed there. And there's almost no way that they didn't. So – I just thought that that was kind of it aged. <laughs> I was like, oh, my How God. I funny to think there was a time when they, YouTube needed to have a commercial. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's not the only movie that Shia LaBeouf stars in that has an Xbox commercial in it, though, because there's an Xbox Transformer in Transformers when all random electronics turn into Transformers. Maybe somebody's carrying an Xbox. an Xbox and it just turns into a Transformers. Maybe he has an Xbox <laughs> Sponsorship? Sponsorship. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) But so he has been keeping times of all of the people around him. So He knows exactly when everything's going to... It's like that scene in Home Alone. When they're like, (laughs) the lights are going to turn on now, and then those lights are going to turn on now, and then it's like that. Yes. And so he uses that to 
get to meet her. He she he knows when she's going to be walking outside, so he pretends to be having trouble. Well, I mean, he literally can't reach his mail from where he is, but yeah. it's very obvious that he's doing it on purpose when he knows she'll be there. Uh-huh. That is how they actually meet. Now, do you think she's super hot? Because I don't think she's nearly as hot as Megan Fox. I think she is model hot. I think she's pretty. Yeah. No, I mean, I... I think she's pretty. No, there, there, no, there is something compelling about Megan Fox as a woman. Like, I think that she is a lot more attractive than this girl because she has like more personality to her. This, this young woman is like a tabula rasa. There's like nothing unique or interesting about her. She is just a blank slate of a human being that's just has pretty slapped on her, and that's it. <laughs> like, there's no personality to her practically at all but she has a cheating father who isn't nice to her and her mom cries and she is just getting to know herself and she goes to clubs and doesn't need a fake id yeah it's that's her personality that's her whole personality it's like everything we learn about her guys like we i mean um, remember what we were talking about with Lisa and Rear Window. And how compelling a character she is. Yeah, even though, like, they don't exactly treat her the best, it's still a little bit sexist. That is better than what we get with this woman here. Yeah, I mean, like, I like to play video games. I like to eat pizza. And, like, uh-huh. that just impresses the shit out of these two guys. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my god, video games and pizza, We've we've got the most incredible girl in the world. It's just like... There's a lot of chicks who do that. Mm-hmm. We haven't even gotten to the when Harry met Sally moment that comes up later where it's just like, oh, my God, what are we teaching our young women? Oh. What do you mean? <laughs> we'll get there. The night of the party is what I'm talking oh. about. But but we'll get there. Just we'll get there. Let, let, let's let's get to there first. What happens next? He meets her. They hang out for a bit. Yeah, he ends up hearing about a missing woman over the news. Uh-huh. But he's not really paying attention to it because he's also watching her. So now he's met her, but he is still stalking her. Yeah. And so he knows her entire routine. So he knows when she's going to do her yoga. He knows when she's going to take a shower, like all that shit. So he's like, oh shit, you can't see me, can you? And I I can't tell if she can or she can't, but I think the impression is that she can and she's kind of doesn't mind it. I, You know, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I feel like there's this sort of nebulous, when we see her looking out the door, she never really spots him doing anything. But she also always knew he was watching the entire time. Like, both of those things are true. And it's weird. The way they craft these moments. Mm-hmm. But that night, when the dad comes in to yell at the daughter and he feels awkward and turns away, he notices his quiet neighbor, the guy who doesn't, who isn't married or anything, has a car, a blue Mustang. Uh-huh, which is what was reported on the news. On yeah. the front, uh-huh. which he heard on the news. So now he starts to spy on this guy, and it's like, he will full-on, in the daytime... Go under a bush to spy on him while he's mowing his lawn. Yeah, and there's a moment where, I know you're there, I can see you there, and he doesn't run away or anything, and then it turns out, oh, he's just talking about, like, a cat or something a that rabbit. he caught. A rabbit. That's that what he's eating it is, in a his rabbit. garden. Yeah, uh-huh. 
It's kind of a cheesy moment. It is a cheesy moment, and it's very unbelievable when he could very easily be watching him from a better vantage point from his yeah. house uh-huh. where he couldn't get caught. It's weird. But so his friend comes over and he shows his friend the hot girl next door and they're watching her. But he also has been telling him about that he thinks that this guy is a murderer. So two reasons to be here. And she ends up seeing them. But again, this time she's not mad when she sees that they're watching. Instead, she comes over to hang out with them. Uh And this is how they get her involved in watching the neighbor as well. So before it's Jeffrey's, his girlfriend, and his nurse. Now it's Kale, the hot girl next door, and his best friend. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These are the three people that are in on this and watching the neighbor. Which is exactly from Bright Night. Guy, hot girl. Best friend. Best friend, yeah. Uh-huh. Except that in that one, the best friend turns evil. Yep. And in that one, the girl's already his girlfriend. Well, in that one, the best friend strikes out solo and ends up getting caught. Or there's a scenario. Well, yeah, we know he gets caught. In this one, the best friend strikes out on his own and then they think he got caught. Like Then he does get caught. Well, No. No, we find out that he the was hiding time, the whole time. first time he's joking, but then the second time he gets caught. No, that's in Kale's house. He's uh, not, yeah. Okay. I'm saying that he goes over to the other guy's house and then you think he's caught, but it turns out he's not. Right. But when they try to show her the fender bender, it isn't there anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Got it fixed very quickly. But she's interested, so she stays to watch and he ends up bringing another girl home. And this is when we find out that she can get into any club without a fake ID. Uh-huh. Because she knows all the club bracelets. She's hot, and so they let her in. Right. But yes, that's how she proves it, is because she knows all the bracelets. But that is her way of providing the female perspective. Yeah. In Rear Instead Window. of a woman would take her purse, she wouldn't leave her jewelry and her makeup. This is... Oh, she's able to get into all these clubs and she goes out looking for these sorts of men. Look at that. She has these three club bracelets on and they represent these locations. And yeah, Mm -hmm. that's her bringing her expertise. Good point. So they're watching her give a dance to him and they end up trying to find the song that she must be dancing to. Oh, that's fun moment. And they end up deciding on you'll never find. I don't know the rest of the lyrics. <laughs> I only know the beginning. Does anybody know the lyrics to that song? It is funny though. The friend walks in, they end up making out, but so they kind of kick the friend out. Yeah, and as uh-huh. he's walking out, he goes, my dad likes this song. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, but then she has to go home immediately, too. Like, almost immediately after they're alone, when the guy, when the friend could have just stuck around the rest of the night, and then Kale wouldn't have been alone, the order of operations is they kick him out so they can be alone, and then she gets a call from her parents or something, and then she has to leave. Is that before or after he flashes at him while he's recording? Maybe they've all gone home and he's by himself. Yeah. He's trying to record because he thinks, oh, he sees the girl banging yeah, on the window. Yeah, she's banging on the window, wants to get out. And, and he's like, what he the fuck is happening? And he falls back uh-huh. 
And it the flash ends up of his, flashing, yeah, even though he's recording. It's a camcorder. Like, there's no reason that would be programmed for a flash to go off like you're taking a picture while you're recording. But now but the guy is staring at him. Yeah, next time he looks out, the guy is staring at him. The next day, his mom comes home and just happened to get a flat tire. And who was there to help her? The neighbor. The neighbor. We also see the woman from the night before, after Kale is all upset. Oh, yes. He the, thinks he sees her leave. Do we ever get an explanation of for that? Yes. He finds a bunch of wigs in his house. Oh, okay. And so he just walked out with a wig on? To pretend like she had left. Oh, that's so funny. Because he knew Kale was watching. Uh-huh. So he had to pretend, which I think is kind of the implication in Rear Window, isn't it? Like, oh, he they saw her. No, but he was having woman. an affair. Oh, it was an affair? Yeah, there was another woman. Oh, they didn't make that very clear in Rear Window. I think they mentioned it at the very end. They confirmed that. But they make it clear that he was seen with a woman after the wife was supposedly killed and puts her on a train. So he did put some woman on a train. And I think that was because he was having an affair, but I may be wrong. Well, in this one, he pretends it's her. Yeah. But yeah, so she just happened to have a flat tire and he was there to help her get home. So that is how he gets into Shia LaBeouf's home to intimidate him. And start flirting with his mom. And and LaBeouf tries to intimidate him, but he doesn't do a very good job. Yeah. And Trinity is constantly undermining him because she's like, what the fuck are you doing? Because she doesn't understand what's going on. Yeah. Meanwhile, after they've already started, like, they made out, right? She suddenly makes friends with Minnie and ends up having a party, which I get she can't invite him to. What a weird subplot, by the way, of this other girl, and they call her... Skinny Minnie. She hears Shia say that one time, and then when she runs into this girl later, she calls her by that name instead of her real name, and it's, she's all embarrassed. And then they're like, hey, we're going to have a party, or whatever, like... It's such a weird subplot that comes well, out of nowhere and first, means nothing. First, she meets her. Uh-huh. She's like, I'm going to have a party. Yeah. He tells her in that moment, oh, that's skinny Minnie, and how dare you try to be friends with the popular kids. Yeah, I thought you were different. I thought yeah. you were different. So you really going through with this? Yes. All right, well, that'll be fun. I just didn't think you would conform so fast, but... Yes, it is just all a bunch of bullshit to, to cause, cause drama. drama. Mm-hmm. Rom- so he's upset drama. that she is getting in good with the popular people. But so she has this party. Then, of course, all these other things are going to happen. Then later she will end up running into Minnie, but she's so distracted by these other things uh-huh. that she will call her skinny Minnie. That's what's going on there. Yes, it is a stupid, pointless subplot. And the only reason that they do it here is... I fill her so that she can have a party and he can play loud music. Ah, yes. Interestingly, you. isn't that by somebody named Minnie? Isn't that the I name know, of the artist that sings Rudolph's that song? Mom. Yeah. Is that Minnie Rudolph? I, it, no, it's Minnie something. Oh, well, there you um, go. Hold on. Minnie Ripperton. There you go. Her name is Minnie. 
anyway, so yes, she's putting on a party with all the popular kids instead of spending time with him and proving herself to just be uh, a popularity hungry, vapid, like, you know, and so Kale is completely unreasonably upset about all of this and he decides he needs to ruin her party. So he straps all of the speakers he has in his house to the roof outside his window and then plays Minnie Ripperton's Loving You really loud to ruin the party until she's forced to come over and give him what for. Yeah, and yells at him for being a creepy stalker, even though she kind of liked it. Yes, I wrote down here. These are my notes. There's nothing attractive about this party jealousy thing. Nothing. It's petty. It's stupid. And if I was her, I would be like, oh, we're not friends anymore. Like, it just, I'm not going to put up with it anymore. You're just an asshole. There's nothing redeeming about it. It's not even a little bit cute. And then at the, they, there's this moment where he does this end of When Harry Met Sally, like, list of beautiful imperfections that she has, which is so fucking unearned. And it's not nearly as interesting or adorable as the one in When Harry Met Sally. I love that you get cold when it's 71 degrees out. I love that it takes you an hour and a half to order a sandwich. I love that you get a little crinkle above your nose when you're looking at me like I'm nuts. I love that after I spend a day with you, I can still smell your perfume on my clothes. And I love that you are the last person I want to talk to before I go to sleep at night. For instance, I've seen that you're maybe one of, I don't know, three people in the world that likes pizza-flavored chips. You're also the only person I've ever seen that, that spends more time on the roof of her house than in her actual house. What are you doing? You're reading books you know not not us weekly or, or 17 or you know but you're reading substantial books also do this uh <laughs> you do this thing where it's like an ocd thing but but it's not it's um whenever you're leaving your room you grab the doorknob and you turn you're getting ready to leave but you don't you stop and you back up and you, you turn to the mirror and you stare at yourself but it's not like a you know i'm so hot type of stare you know it's it's more like who am I, really? And ask yourself that. I mean, that's <laughs> so cool. And then at the end, when he talks about looking out at everything from inside his house, and he's like, I'm only looking at you to, like, prove how much he loves her. When it's like, dog, that's not attractive. You're basically saying that you are a stalker. But if the girl's already attracted to him, it it works. That's why That's my say problem. anything works. It's <laughs> what we're teaching our young women and our young as long men. As the guy is attractive, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yes, it's what we're teaching our young people that be creepy because it proves you love them. And Only if, if you're a guy attractive. is and if a guy is acting creepy but you like him, then that means he loves you. It's the worst fucking lesson we could be giving our young people. It's terrible. And it's not because I'm lonely, and it's not because it's New Year's Eve. I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. You see? That is just like you, Harry. You say things like that and you make it impossible for me to hate you. And I hate you, Harry. I really hate you. So... You look out the window all the time like I do, only you're looking at the world, you know. 
trying to figure it out, trying to understand the world, trying to figure out why it's not in order, like your books. looking at you. That's either the creepiest or the sweetest thing I've ever heard. It's probably the worst part of the movie for me. I, yeah, well, I grew up in this society and I grew up on Say Anything, so yes. for me... it's also like, fucking creepy. That's what I'm saying, but like for me, I'm like, I get it. <laughs> you told me to leave you alone. I'm going to stand outside your window playing the song that was on the radio when we had sex for the first time. She that's fucking creepy. Leave her alone because her dad told her to. It doesn't matter. She said what she wanted. He needs to leave her the fuck alone. He knew it wasn't what she really wanted. And so actually Shia knows that this isn't really what she wants. So let's teach the young people that (laughs) if you think you know what what's best for them, then go ahead and impose your will on them. This is what Ashley says at the end of that long fucking speech where he's like, these are all the things that I've observed and meticulously notated about you. And then she says that's either the creepiest or the sweetest thing I've ever heard. And then they kiss. And it's sweetest because she's attractive. That's what do you it. want? Exactly. <laughs> it's the, the fucking worst. And we wonder why our people, our young people who aren't so attractive, get fucking bitter when this shit doesn't work for them. And people call, <laughs> them, people call them creepy. And now all of a sudden you're just building more bitter people and building more entitled people. And it's just the worst. <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> But also, I'd like to point out, she comes over there to stop all this, right? Yes. So she's not putting an end to her party. Her party is still going on. And then she just spends the rest of the night night. with him. What happened at your house? What happened to the party? You don't know. Uh Uh-huh. They could have just stolen everything right out of your house and you wouldn't fucking know. The worst. But they end up seeing blood like in, in his, a bag. In yeah, he's hauling around a bag. Looks like it could be carrying a chopped up body or something. Guess what? Spoilers. It's an a deer. It's a deer. <laughs> but like that's how they end that scene. And the next day, it's just the next day. Uh huh. No explanation of what happened. Yeah. Just they're move gonna on go. With the movie. They're gonna they they go several times from zero to killer in this movie with David Morse. Because in the other one, it's like, I saw something and I feel like the only explanation can be that he killed her. But there's also these innocent explanations as well. And every time something happens, it builds on your suspicions, but it's just all coincidence potentially. This is none of that. It's just like, nope, he's a killer. He is a killer, and you know this. Yeah, who does this? He do this. We notice. We hate this. He do this. We notice. But how are you going to prove it? Exactly. That's the That's problem. the conflict of this movie that's different from Rear Window. There is a how are you going to prove it thing, but it's more like there's a rational explanation for everything in Rear Window. In this, there's not. It's just the audience knows for a fact this is a killer. And so they decide to follow him so they could break into the car 
and find evidence break into they want to break into his garage so they got to break into the car to oh, get the yeah. code uh-huh. to open up the garage door and so while they're doing that ashley is ashley following, is yeah, following uh-huh. him in the hardware store yeah uh seeing him get a bunch of stuff but like it's a like, shovel and <laughs> but it's like yeah that stuff does seem suspicious but it also could just be a dude buying hardware but then he forces his way into yes. her car, takes the keys out of the ignition, and I'm like, I don't care if you're innocent. That is illegal. That's fucked. Call the police. That is fucked. As soon as a guy gets into your car and you did not invite him into your car, call the police. And forces you to stay there? Yeah. Like, no. And she's like, we well, didn't do anything. Yes. Yes, he did. Girls, if someone gets into your car and you did not invite them, that is doing something yeah. wrong and I illegal. I don't care if he's not a murderer. Fuck this guy. I wrote down, there isn't a lot of doubt here at this point. Like, it's, he's just a bad guy now. Like, there is no reasonable doubt here. He's just a bad guy. We know this. Like, we're aware of this. And that was kind of, I'd probably say, even though it's not the worst scene in the movie, it's kind of the biggest bummer. There's no tension and paranoia that's thread throughout the movie. It's just a lot of character building with Shia and the girl next door and his best friend and why he's in house arrest and all of this. And then all of a sudden they introduce a guy and he's a murderer. Like now we're moving on to the second phase of this movie. Like there's no paranoia or doubt. I think there's a little bit of doubt. I mean, a lot of people are telling him he's wrong a lot. And even the people that he has on his side are constantly doubting him. Yeah, but it's people that you, these are all tropes of these types of movies at this point. So they've already established firmly exactly what's going on. And that's my problem. There is still anxiety in the movie, though, because when they send Ronnie into the garage later. So first he gets into the car And he has to get the code for all the switches that identify the unique signal that the garage door opener sends to just your garage uh, to open it. So Shia can spoof it and they can get into the garage later. Uh, I thought for sure because Ronnie dropped his jacket that he would leave the jacket there when he goes back into the car later. Like that's an anxiety driving moment. But later that night, he sends Ronnie actually into the garage to look for the dead body. And that got my anxiety going, even though I knew exactly what they were doing the entire time. And by they, I mean the filmmakers. (laughs) It still got my anxiety going. Uh, It was a very effective moment in the movie, I would say. Well, I think it gets me every time. Yeah. I think I think he's dead every time. Uh They they do a good job of that. However, their excuse for it is bullshit. I'm going to make a joke that I was murdered by a guy that we all think murders women. No, 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 no. You're you're connecting these two things too closely. He gets out and he gets to safety. Yes. First, and then he plays a joke on Kale. Him getting potentially getting caught inside the house is not part of that joke. It's just him. Hey, I'm actually alive and I'm okay. That's the joke part. No, he pretends to be dead. He in the closet. A picture to Shia. In the closet. Yeah, he's in the closet, but he's pretending to be dead. But he's already out of David Morse's house. I understand. Him him potentially being caught in David Morse's house is not part of the prank. That really did happen. He almost got caught. I understand. Yeah. And then he pretended that he did get caught and was killed. Yes. And that is a fucked up joke. It is. I'm just saying... 
that it has nothing to do with the anxiety driving parts of him being in the house. Oh, well, for me, it's anxiety because I think he's dead. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> It doesn't make any sense why he would do that. He That's immediately what I'm he immediately apologizes, saying it's in bad taste, and they move on. Because and it's like so that makes me know it's just for the audience. Yes, yeah, because it was just for the audience. Yeah, uh huh. That's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> so he calls the cops. He gets the cops to show up by breaking the perimeter line because he's looking for his buddy, and the cops show up, and they even start to get a little suspicious. First of all, he explains that his car had his dent buffed out so quickly because he takes it to car shows and it needs to be pristine. So that's why he got the dent fixed. And the answer for why he had the dent in the first place is because he hit a deer. And that's what's in that bag and full of blood and everything. And we actually see it. But we know he's really a killer. (laughs) We do notice him. We saw the woman desperate to get out. Yes. Then we saw her leave. Uh, uh Uh-huh. Which, what's that about? (laughs) You saw tall-ass David Morse in a wig. Anyway. So now it's like, oh, you got to come before a judge. He's in real big trouble. Now at this point, Shia is for breaking the perimeter twice now. Um, Because the first time they were like, we understand. Everyone does it. We get it. But if it happens again... You're going in front of a judge. And so now it's happened again. And now he's in trouble and he's going to have to sit before a judge. And his, he might have to go to prison. He might have his sentence extended. We don't know exactly what's going to happen yet, but he's fucked and his mom is pissed at him. Yes. Which is why she decides to go over there and apologize to uh, him. Huh? Which gets her knocked out. Yeah. And he attacks her immediately And then he goes over to Kale's house where Ronnie is downstairs and hits Ronnie over the head with a bat. Yes, knocks Ronnie out. And then he attacks Kale. Yes. And I gotta say, the struggle to keep Kale within the perimeter and Kale to get out across this line was actually a whole lot of fun. (laughs) I really enjoyed that. When all he wants to do is like, I don't need to get away or anything. I just need to get across this line line that's very clearly delineated like the stakes are very obvious and they play with them a little bit and i thought that that was pretty cool yeah and it was very upsetting because here's the thing like we said the cop who comes and checks up on him is the cousin of the guy he punched so the entire time he's been like i'm gonna be like on you like white on rice Uh every little thing you do i'm gonna push you down so then this time, because it's in the same night, he's just like, I'll get to it when I get to it. And it's like, he could be running away. Right. He could be doing other like, things. They, they, the, the motivation for this cop is, I don't like him, so I'm not going to respond immediately. And I'm sorry, but that old, that logic only works if you know he's in trouble. Yeah, if you think he's in harm's way. But if you really hate this guy and you want to fuck with him, you would show up immediately. Yes. But he doesn't. He shows up eventually. Because the movie says he doesn't. Exactly. It doesn't fit. It's, again, something that's just for the audience and it's manufactured. And that's this movie's biggest problem is all the manufactured bullshit. So they end up making it over to David Morse's house and, you know, he needs to get to his mom and he doesn't know where his mom is. And so he's looking for his mom. He ends up going into the basement and we see all this weird shit going on in the basement. There's extra 
dug paths in this basement that are six feet deep that he's following, and eventually he finds his mom. Meanwhile, the cop finally does show up, and David Morse kills him. <laughs> kills the cop, so that cop's dead now. I don't feel bad at all. I don't think we're supposed to. He's a bad character. He's able to free his mom, uh, who's been tied up and strung up, uh, but just as David Morse attacks him, there's a big fight. There's a big fight with a whole lot of dead bodies just floating around. Yes. It's raining. Oh, yeah, I forgot. There's a convenient storm going on yes. right now when this happens. Mm -hmm. And, okay, let me tell you something. Storms like this don't happen in Whittier. <laughs> Lightning storms? It just does not happen in Okay, Whittier. it's extremely rare, and when it does happen, it is not this torrential downpour. No, absolutely not. We are talking about L.A., Okay, <laughs> this is what you need to know. Whittier is in L.A. <laughs> anyway. But so all these dead bodies come floating around. It's he, well, yeah, he, it always bothers me. He falls me. into like, the water and the bodies pop up. This major, massive serial right. killer. But there's a poltergeist moment where he's in the yes. muddy pool, mm -hmm. effectively, and then real bodies pop up. Ashley, at one point, is sent away to make sure that the cops actually show up. I gotta get my mom Make sure the cops are coming, okay? Okay? Go! Go! She disappears for the rest of the movie until the very end. The only cop that shows up originally is the one that hates Kale. Yeah. And she's not with him. I don't know where she is. And so she's it's just, just gone. just Kale and his mom yeah. fighting him, and they end up killing him with shears. Yep. And then he he falls into the pool which is like in his basement's basement. Did you notice that? Like they're no, in the basement not. and then he falls down into a pit in the basement. It's like. Well, isn't that just the water from the torrential downpour? Yeah, but it's a big pit underneath the area that they're standing, which is already in a six foot hole that's dug in the basement. <laughs> so they're like three layers down at this point. Like what's going on in this house? <laughs> Anyway, the cops end up eventually showing up, and I guess Ashley brought them, and Ronnie's still alive. Basically, no one we care about died. Nope. At all. Nope. The only one who was an established character that died was the cop. Yes. And that's it. There was this lady that we never met that also died, and a bunch of people that died before the movie happened. Yes. But it's a PG-13 movie. It's got a, a body count of two. PG-13. Yeah. <laughs> it's more scary because how they going to catch him? Yes. Uh-huh. Shia gets his ankle bracelet off. Taken off early for good behavior. Yeah. We get... Oh, he gets revenge on the kids Viola across Davis. the street. Oh, yeah, by calling uh, the, mom. the mom, saying, pretending he's the uh, the cable company, and gets them busted for watching porn. Yes. Hello. Mrs. Greenwood. Hi, this is Joe Smith from the Satellite Company. Well, we're just calling to check up on our uh, adult program subscribers. What are you talking about? Uh, skin flicks, ma'am. That's what the kids are calling them. Well, we see that you're currently accessing it, ma'am, as we speak. From receiver three, second floor of your house. I'm, I'm just doing my job. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Which was, I guess, fun. And we end the movie with him and the chick making out. Making out. Has she been in anything else? Her name is Sarah Romer. She was in Wrist Cutters. Oh, I really liked that movie. Um, she was in some Richard Gere and Jonah Allen movie called Hachi, A Dog's Tale. It looks to be about a Shiba Inu. Uh, and something called Fired Up with a big F-U 
on it. Oh, yeah. Isn't that like a cheerleading movie? I assume so. Yeah. She wasn't in a lot. I mean, like, I don't want to say it's all the actress's fault. There's not a lot for her to work with here, but she's just a very dull character. She's just the hot chick that he's interested in. That's all she is. Uh, but if you listen to his speech, there's so much more to her that we don't ever get to see. Oh, Jesus. Kelsey, did you know that she is, like, one of three people in the world that likes pizza-flavored chips? Well, remember, that was That's one of the reasons they really about liked her. about her, is how much she liked pizza. Uh-huh. You're the only person I've ever seen that spends more time on the roof of her house than in her actual house. And what are you doing? You're reading. Books, not Us Weekly or Seventeen or, you know, but you're reading substantial books. Oh, my God. I love that this is what it takes. I just. God. So bad. <laughs> there's a lot. Of, there's a lot about this movie that I like and a lot that's really bad. I think that this is a pretty good teen horror movie. Yes. A um, teen horror movie. Specifically Popcorn because of that. teen movie. And I All like the it. bad stuff is a good thing for teens who want to watch a horror movie. It's you know what fun. I mean? Yeah. But it's not like quality cinema. It's no. just fun. Yeah. So with that said, what do you think it has on Rotten Tomatoes? I'm going to say it probably has like a 68. Holy shit. It has a 69. There you go. 69, dudes! Aside from its cliched resolution, Disturbia is a tense subtle thriller with a noteworthy performance from Shia LaBeouf. Subtle is not the best word. <laughs> Metacritic of 62, a cinema score of A-. Hell yeah, dude. Holy when I shit. out of the theater, I fucking love this movie. Uh-huh. So, do you think that that is overrated or underrated? A-69. It's underrated. Sure. I'm gonna give it a 76. Oh, okay. I was going to give it like a like a 73. Like a low to mid 70s. It's I think it's higher than fun. That. It's entertaining. Exactly. But it's not it's very entertaining. Great. No. It's, it's good. It's fun and it's entertaining and you know me, I love teen horror. Yeah. I mm -hmm. love it. So totally get it. Yeah. So that is 2007's Disturbia. We would also like to give a shout out to Tron for recommending Rear Window. Uh, it was something that was already on our list, but want to make sure that uh, we recognize people that are recommending movies. Yes, thank you, Tron. We have a list of hundreds of movies. Don't stop recommending, but just know if we don't get to your movie anytime soon, it's because we're picking out of hundreds. So thank you very much for those of you that have been reaching out to see the movies that you like on the show. Yes, thank you. But that was Disturbia! <laughs> What are we watching next week, Kelsey? Next week is a recommendation week. Really? Yes. JP recommended, and because we were talking about it, I think on the show, and then I think he responded with, he would like us to watch Pitch Black. Yeah, Pitch Black, which is absolutely a sci-fi horror movie. Yes. 100%. It's just a horror movie that takes place in space on another planet. It's sci-fi. It's basically like Alien, right? And then we're watching it with... The Chronicles of Riddick. Which is part of that Riddick Less franchise. scary, but Riddick does go a little bit closer towards, back towards horror, you could argue. 
just Riddick itself? I never saw Riddick. Oh. Interestingly, because I really like the franchise. I mean, I've seen the Chronicles of Riddick, but I've never seen Riddick. Riddick is good. I really like the Riddick franchise, so I'm surprised I never saw that. Like, love the games. The games are fantastic. I just like the little world. It's just stupid and fun. (laughs) And, you know, they make a big deal about this Furian, which is what Riddick is. He's basically a human, and then he gets night vision. Well, there's supposed (laughs) to be a fourth movie called Furia. Well, there's an animated movie, too. So, yeah, we can watch a lot of the Riddick franchise, but we're going to start with the OG, the original Pitch Black from 2000. And then we're going to watch Chronicles, Chronicles of, Riddick. of Riddick, which is like 2003 or something like that. I'll look it up and we'll get it for certain when we actually do that. So, uh, yes, the actual real horror movie Pitch Black and then the sequel to it, The Chronicles of Riddick. Which, I don't know, is it a sequel or a prequel? They're a little bit mixed up, and I can't remember. It's been such a long time, and so I'm really excited to watch them again. <laughs> Until then, you can always catch us at our website, podcemetery.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at podcemetery, where we post a lot of extra multimedia-like stuff or afterthoughts that don't actually make it into the episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us in your podcatcher of choice. And rate and review. A five-star written review is the biggest help you can give us there. Even bigger than that is sharing us with your friends, and even bigger than that is listening in the GD first place. Thank you all very, very much. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Nobody ever invented a polite word for a killing yet. It's a thief in the night to come and grab you. Up inside you and consume you A disease of the mind It can't control you It's too close for comfort you can find it yeah me too <laughs> yeah me too <laughs> yeah me too <laughs> i wish i could remember the dad's name and alvin and the chipmunks what's his name <laughs> alvin Alvin and the chipmunks i'm gonna look it up real quick dave yeah morse i was about to call him morse code watch all those episodes we've covered watch- all of those and they're yeah so they're sit there now their heads are towards the the how do you explain this? Towards the, the road. Ground. The car's upside down. Upside down. Thank you. <laughs> car is upside down. I'm old. Disturbia! Disturbia!